Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Mancopter. This week's trivia question is kind of tricky. Do you know what the AHS Sikorsky Prize is? Probably not, but you will by the time we get to the end of this week's episode. Now, before I get started talking about this week's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy headlines. Welcome back to another episode of Sprite Castle. I got a lot of feedback from last week's game, which was Load Runner. The first one came from Buck Owens, who said Loadrunner and Bilestone were probably the most played games on his high school and junior high Apple IIs. It seemed like everyone had a copy. I always played using the keyboard using two hands, one for the directions and the other one for digging left and right. The single button joystick, which is where you dig in the direction you're facing, really sucks. (laughs) This game is ported to so many systems, the ports that stay true to the original, which have a single screen, are all pretty good, and the versions that are zoomed in, cutesy, and or have the screen scrolling fail. Uh, Well, I agree with Mr. Owens. Um, I think the zoomed in versions do suck. (laughs) I think um, Load Runner is a lot like Pac-Man. If you want to play... Not only do you have to see where you're going on the maze, but you have to be able to keep your eye on where the ghosts are and what they're doing. And Load Runner is no different. So if you are playing normal versions of Load Runner where you could see all the bungling uh, enemies on the screen at one time, you can strategize and, and figure out your plan. But if you can't see where they're at, it kind of becomes a uh, game of chance and it's not quite the same. I got a feedback from Dub Project. That is Mr. Eric Nelson. Eric Nelson is a co-host on the Pixel Guide In podcast, who was also recently added to the Amigos Retrocast family. So welcome to Pixel Guide In. Uh, Eric says, I played Load Runner a lot as a kid on my Commodore 64. He watched my video and thought about the one button dig in that direction style of control. He just thought that's how the game was. I never knew there was a two-button digging until I grabbed an Apple IIGS about eight years ago. But I'm so used to the Commodore 64 way that that's my preferred method even now. Um, You know, that's a good point, and and this is what it makes me think of. I can't think of another game where a control difference between two different versions of the game really almost make it a different game. I mean, uh, Load Runner, all your strategy, the way that you play, how fast you could go through levels really is different depending on if you're using the two directional dig, whether you're using keyboard buttons or a uh, computer that supports multiple buttons or a single button controller where you have to dig the direction that you're facing. It's just a, a fact that you can't, dig through brick as quickly using one button as the joysticks that let you dig behind where you're at. So it it almost is like playing uh, not two different games, but you have to use two different strategies to get through. So, But I think most people got accustomed to whichever one uh, version of Load Runner they played first. I know that, that I definitely did. 
Wing Chun Wolf said, Flack, I love the Load Runner show. I played a pirated copy on the Apple II. My friend and I heard that it had a level editor, but had no idea how to access it without a manual. Our 13-year-old brain stopped by calling Broderbund directly and just asking them for the information would be a great idea. Of course, they didn't. Half the fun with getting wares in those days was trying to figure out how to play a game properly. We did eventually get that magic keyboard sequence for the level editor and made tons of terrible levels. I think it was like Control-E, but only during non-gameplay. Fun times. Uh, Well, I agree that... um you know, a lot of games in this week's game, Mancopter is uh, really no exception to that in the fact that if you have the instructions, it's a different game versus if you don't have the instructions. Uh, it's much easier to play and figure out what is going on, you know, if you have that manual. And, of course, if you were downloading games like a lot of us were back in the 1980s, you didn't always get documentation, and so you didn't always know all the little secret uh keys and if you you found them you didn't always know what they did so uh, i do like the idea of calling broderbund you know a lot of software manuals from back in the 1980s and even some in the 90s but definitely in the early days of the 80s companies would include their phone number you know if you had problem with this disc or problem getting it loading call our phone number and i mean these were companies that had you know a dozen or less employees so um, yeah, it just, uh, I like that idea of calling them and saying, Hey, I can't figure out <laughs> how to do this. When obviously if you had the manual, you would know how to do that. So, um, I got, uh, a comment from Dazel who says, Hey, Flack, I love the load runner episode. Would love to hear what level you made it to last week. Well, uh, I played for a long time. I paused several times to pause the game and, and come back a few hours later. I paused it overnight and I got to level, I think, 18, 17 or 18. Uh, just as a reminder, Loadrunner has 150 levels. So that was definitely a type of game where you got your money's worth. Like, I don't know how long it would take you to get, uh, especially if you weren't cheating and skipping the levels, which it did allow you to do. But uh, to get to work all the way through all 150 of those levels, that would have been something back then. So that was definitely, uh, like I said, a type of game where you could play it for weeks and weeks and maybe months, you know. So that that um, was definitely a good value to have back then. I got one non-Loadrunner-related email from a listener named Gordon who says he listens to my podcast and likes them. Well, thank you, Gordon. He has a C64 Mini and really hates the included joystick. It even makes some games unplayable. So what he did was buy an adapter to use original Commodore 64 joysticks. Uh, And then he said, see the attached photo of this, and now he can use his favorite Commodore 64 joysticks, which makes the experience much more enjoyable. So I did look at his attachment and i was really expecting to see you know just a traditional usb to db9 adapter you know i i have one of those on my pc um you know those uh they're they're a dime a dozen but the one that he sent me a picture of is white and it actually has the four buttons that are included on the c64 mini joystick so it's not only a usb to db9 adapter but it has the four buttons uh that are included on the joystick that comes with the mini so i did a cursory google search and i sent gordon an email i haven't heard back yet so i'm not exactly sure where he got this but uh you know if the c64 mini if that is your your primary 
Commodore system, and I guess even it would work with the new the C64 that uh, is already out overseas and will be released here in the States here in the next couple of months. I guess that would uh, uh, work for that as well. So if I find out more information about that little adapter, I will uh, pass that along. I mentioned uh, at the top of the news that some of the listeners were referring to the Load Runner video that I posted on uh, YouTube. So if you want to watch that, go over to youtube.com forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming and look for the Sprite Castle Plays playlist. You will see the Load Runner video in there and you'll see the video for this week's game, which is Mancopter. Uh, another news chat topic I wanted to throw out there is, um, I finally got, I've never tried this before, uh, but I got my first shipment of Retrobrite and I was going to try Retrobriting. I have some things that, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, if you're into classic computers, you know what Retrobrite is. It is the, um, supposedly and nearly magical uh, product that you can put on plastic and have it de-yellow. Now, there's a lot of uh, people that don't recommend that you retro-bright things, and I don't have a opinion one way or the other, really. Um, but some people say that it makes the plastic more brittle and that even though it reverses the yellowing color that it will, the item can, can, uh, begin to yellow more quickly next time. So I, I don't really know. So I was going to try it. I have a, a Macintosh, an old Macintosh SE 30 that I got from a garage sale and I was going to try it on that, but I ended up just putting it, I read, uh, on one website where someone said you could just put it out in the sunlight. And I thought, well, that sounds too good to be true. So I did put that Macintosh out in the sunlight. I left it for two days and it is significantly wider than it was when I began. So, uh, you know, I talked about this. I think I mentioned the same thing on, you don't know flack. I don't know if there's long-term damage to that. I don't know if it makes the plastic more brittle. Um, but, uh, it certainly looks uh, it's more pleasing to the eye right now than it was before. So I, I don't know. I'm really on the fence. But if you have um, feedback or if you have experience with Retro Bright or anything, I'd love to hear your story. So uh, at the end of the news segment, I always mention where you can get a hold of me. But I, I would love to hear about uh, your experiences and your opinion with uh, Retro Bright and not Retro Bright necessarily uh, Retro Bright TM <laughs> or whatever, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, lightning plastic in general. Uh, as for links and news things, uh, number one thing that I saw this week that I just watched was uh, Robin Harbron uh, from 8-Bit Show and Tell released a video on YouTube of the, uh, it's a really thorough look at the Commodore 64 programmer's reference guide. It's really uh, interesting. Obviously, Robin is a, a great programmer and, and uh, one of the the uh, uh, great assets of the Commodore 64 community. So you can uh, go over to his YouTube uh, channel, over just look up 8-Bit Show and Tell, and you can find his latest video, but I recommend watching that. Uh, I also saw uh, the Retro Hour, which is a, a podcast that's been around for a while, but I just only recently 
uh, discovered it. And they, this week, uh, I guess probably last week now, interviewed um, the man behind The Games That Weren't, who just recently published a book. And I have referenced The Games That Weren't many times on Sprite Castle. That is a website that tracks down and documents games that were in the planning stages or were announced to be released and for whatever reason didn't make it to market. And they sometimes track those games. They were the guys that recently released Joust for the Commodore 64 and tracking that down after um, you know decades of that game being missing. So uh, it, it's uh, an interesting episode and it's an interesting interview. So if you are a, a fan of uh, you know that sort of thing, games that weren't, go check out uh, the Retro Hour. It's episode 240. You can find them on Twitter at Retro Hour UK. Uh, I downloaded several new games for the Commodore 64 this week. Uh, the first one is Grid Picks, which I actually purchased. Uh, you can find that online on, um, I think I got it through itch.io. I'm not sure, but, uh, uh, it is a fun little puzzle game. It's kind of hard to describe, but there's these little grids and, uh, it tells you on the X and Y axis what, you know, how many dots to, to fill in. And as you fill them in, you kind of draw these little pictures and it's really fun. There's a lot of levels and it's only $3. So you can, you can obviously, um, uh, raise the price if you want to give more, but the minimum is $3. And I, I totally think that was worth it. So I just started playing grid picks yesterday and I'm looking forward to, uh, diving in. It looks like it's going to be a really addictive little game. Uh, I also got a copy of Planet Balls, which is, I believe that started as an Android game. Uh, it's almost like Lemmings, like you have something that you have to get from the beginning of a level to the end that you're not directly controlling. Uh, but in this case, it's these, uh, it's King Ball and these little balls. And so you have to, uh, manipulate the environment to get the balls from one end to the other. Uh, and I found a link to that on CommodoreNews.com. And, uh, yeah, that's another one that looks like it's going to be filling up some of my time, uh, definitely, uh, this week. I also saw a game called Quick War. I saw that on, uh, I believe that was the Indie Retro News. I'll have links to all this stuff, of course, in the show notes on the website. Um, but, uh, Quick War is a space shooter made with the shoot 'em up construction kit. Uh, it is $4 on HIO, and um, I have not purchased this one yet. I just saw a video of it. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm, uh, I'm not, not any, I'm not, I don't even want to um, imply that. But I, I'm just trying to buy like one or two games a week, and I kind of hit my limit. And uh, I'm really bad at... Uh, <laughs> horizontal shoot 'em ups anyway and uh there's another horizontal shoot up uh that's supposed to be released either friday or this weekend that i think is going to be a big news story over the weekend and and i'll definitely be talking next week so i'm kind of uh uh waiting up for that but if you want to check that out again check the uh, uh show notes if you like those vertical uh shoot 'em ups then uh you might enjoy this also, I did see a link for a game coming soon, and this looks really cool. This is minor, I don't know how to say this, 2019er, I guess. Uh, you know, you may be familiar with the classic game Minor 49er or 2049er, uh, which is a platform game. It's a very, very early platform game 
that was released for several different computers. I know we played it on the uh, uh, Apple, and I played it on the Commodore. And so this uh, minor 2019er is a updated version with all new levels, but the graphics and everything look the same. So I'm, I'm, uh, and this will be a Cytronic release. So I'm really looking forward to that. Of course, they do great stuff with uh, all their releases. So uh, I think that'll be really cool. If you'd like to uh, send me feedback about this episode or any episode of Sprite Castle, you can email me at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Contact me on Twitter at Commodore. Follow the show on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash RobCast. Catch me hanging out on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave me a voicemail on the FLAC podcast hotline, which is area code 405-486-YDKF. I did play a lot of Mancopter this week, and let me tell you, Mancopters are high-maintenance devices, so I want to thank all the members of my Mancopter pit crew for keeping the Mancopter up and running. Uh, that pit crew includes John Schaller, Eric Strianisi, Matt Nicholson, Dave Zilli, Steve Rasmussen, Patrick Markey, Garrett Allier, Rick Reynolds, Scott Lambert, Jake Nonamaker, Cobra Kai, and the latest member of the pit crew, David Hearn. Of course, my Mancopter pit crew is also my Patreon supporters, and these are the guys that are keeping this podcast going. I want to save like one nickel at a time. These guys, everybody's giving a lot more than nickel. <laughs> Oh, but uh, so thank you to all my Patreon supporters. You guys uh, are, uh, I, I really appreciate uh, all your support. And if you want to also support this podcast and get some of the cool kickbacks, go over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara and find out more about that. That concludes this week's news brought to you by my local paper boy who just delivered today's newspaper to my wife's birdbath. Maybe with a smile. Now that we've covered this week's news, let's talk about this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. Well, all the way back on episode one of Sprite Castle, when I reviewed Pirates, I talked about working at Long John Silver's. Uh, I think probably in the United States unless well if you're my age you might have experienced fish sticks from a frozen dinner <laughs> I had a lot of frozen dinners uh, with fish sticks but uh, I think today a lot of kids in the U.S. first experience uh, fried fish at Long John Silver's and I remember when I was working at Long John Silver's I had a guy come in uh, obviously with an English accent and he tried to order fish and chips he said I might I do a really bad English accent. I might like to order the fish and chips. And I was like, yeah, man, we don't have chips here. We just got French fries. And he's like, yeah, mate, fish and chips. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we, we don't have, we don't have chips here, you know? And that was when I first learned that, um, fish and chips is really fish and French fries. <laughs> In the United States. Now, I do know uh, that there is a difference between chips and French fries. I think chips, um, what the English would call chips, would be, uh, you know, a thicker type of potato, uh, not potato, um, uh, a thicker French fry. And, uh, of course, the fried fish on top. 
Um, if I, you know, if you were a kid here, you would say, oh, I want, you know, fish and, and French fries. But I didn't know that that, that actual meal was called fish and chips. Now, uh, I think most people learn what fish and chips are here when they turn 21 and they start going to pubs and you go to a, a bar, you know, an Irish pub. There's an Irish pub near me, um, Henry Hudson's I used to go to, and they would have uh, fish and chips on the menu. And you order that and you get fish and thick French fries and you go, oh, I guess that's what uh, fish and fish and chips are. <laughs> so um, there is a, a restaurant near me called Louis Grill and Bar. I always call it Louis Bar and Grill, but I guess it's Louis uh, Grill and Bar, uh, which is not unlike Chili's, I guess you could say. Um, but, uh, the one, one saving grace about them right now is that they have outdoor seating and their outdoor seating is spread really far apart. And so, um, we did go there last weekend. We try, if we do go eat out, we've, we've got this, um, you know, kind of a list of rules that we have to check off. Like they have to have outdoor seating. If we're going to go somewhere, we we're just trying not to go in restaurants right now. Um, and it, you know, it has to be good spacing and stuff like that. And, and we try to go during off hours, you know, we try not to go like right at, uh, you know, lunchtime or dinner time or whatever. So we went a little late. Um, but you know, I've been thinking about mancopter and part of mancopter is dealing with fish and, and, uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to get the fish and chips while I think about mancopter. And then I tried to explain to my wife about mancopter and she said, shut up, Rob. Eat your fish and chips. <laughs> oh, that's what I did. So anyway, this week's snack is uh, fish and chips, what I think is a uh, a delicious little meal that goes pretty well with mancopter. Mancopter was developed by Nichibutsu USA and published for the Commodore 64 in 1984 by Datasoft. It is a game for one player that uses joystick controls. Now, I have covered two other Datasoft games on Sprite Castle, so usually when I repeat a company, I don't go into their history. I talked more about Datasoft on episode three when we covered Bruce Lee and on episode 18 when we talked about Goonies. Uh, some of the games published by Datasoft include Magic Carpet, Zaxxon, Rockola's Nibbler, Puyan, Dig Dug, Bruce Lee, Pac-Man, Conan, Zorro, The Goonies, Mr. Do, Pole Position, Alternate Reality, The Neverending Story, The Hunt for Red October, and the Time and Magic Trilogy, which is one of their latest entries in uh, Moby Games, which was in 1989. Now, there's an interesting... <sighs> theory about this game the credits say that it was designed by nichibutsu usa which is also known as nihon busan you may have heard that time uh that title they did release uh lots of arcade games they did terra force terra cresta moon cresta uh some of the ones you might remember wcw world championship wrestling they did that they did the uh, Super Off-Road Baja edition. They did Ten Pen Alley. 
Um, and they did Andre Agassi tennis. And uh, I think probably their most famous game would be Crazy Climber, at least if you're a retro uh, arcade gamer, you'd probably know that would be the one you might uh, be most familiar with. But here's the interesting thing is that Nihon Busan was mostly known for releasing arcade titles. Um, and there is no record. Well, first of all, there is no arcade game, Mancopter. And if you look through Nihon Busan's company history, there is no reference to Mancopter. So there is a theory out there that Mancopter was going to be designed to be an arcade game and was never made. And then the plans were just given to Datasoft, who was also doing a lot of arcade conversions at that same time. I mean, I just talked about how they did, um, you know, Pole Position and Mr. Do and, and uh, pa- you know, Pac-Man and Puyan and Dig Dug and all those games. So uh, it's not really sure what their connection is uh, to this game. It just says that it was developed by them. Um, but, uh, not published. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, it does say that the game was programmed by Scott Spanberg. Well, Scott Spanberg, if you look him up, uh, cut his teeth, he coded Puyan for the Commodore 64 and uh, Mancopter. He also did the Goonies, which we covered, uh, like I said, I believe that's episode 18. He did Delta Patrol, Airborne Ranger, M1 Tank Platoon, Knights of the Sky, F-15 Strike Eagle 3. He worked on Virtual Carts, which is a great racing game, uh, Gunship. And some of his latest credits were The Elder Scrolls Online in 2014. He worked on Sid Meier's Civilization VI in 2016 and X. Exxon, or sorry, XCOM Chimera Squad in 2020. So kudos to Scott Spanberg, who's had a long uh, career here for uh, programming awesome games. off the discussion this week, I want to read this blurb from the backside of the Mancopter manual. It says, you are about to enter a race within a mysterious world accessible only to the most skillful Mancopter pilots. (laughs) As you wait at the starting line for the sound of the cannon, be prepared to lift off from the whale as he gently nudges you above the water. When you begin the race, you have four fish in your possession. Hold on to your fish. You will need them in future encounters. Your goal is to complete each section of the race before the time runs out. A section is completed when you fall onto a raft. As you rest on the raft, your bonus points are tallied and added to your score. During the race, you will be challenged by other mancopters, birds, giant squid, lightning bolts, and dodo birds, and encounter friendly mermaids and mysterious mangroves. The mancopters you race with can knock you into the water if they bump you while you are underneath them. You, in turn, can knock them into the water if you bump them while they are beneath you. Some birds you encounter will be carrying a fish in their bills. Grab the fish if you can. If a bird flies by without a fish in his bill, look out. He'll try to grab one of your fish. And if you don't have a fish to give him, you'll fall into the water. You can capture and hold up to eight fish at one time. You'll want to capture as many fish as you can because whenever you fall into the water, the whale will not rescue you and lift you into the race unless you have a fish to give him. 
The mangroves will require special maneuvering skills and introduce you to some new hazards. You can't fly through the trees, so plan your flight carefully. Watch out for giant squid. They're looking for fish, and if you have any, they'll grab one. If you don't have any fish, they'll knock you into the water. The mangrove dodo birds lurk among the trees. Be careful when one begins to fall. If you're in its path, it will take two of your fish. If you have one or no fish, you will fall into the water. When the clouds suddenly turn dark, you have entered the storm zone where dangerous bolts of lightning may strike you without warning. As you progress through the game, each succeeding level becomes more difficult as the race grows more treacherous. So that kind of explains what's going on in Mancopter. You are in this uh, big race and uh, you're racing other mancopters, and there are a whole lot of uh, enemies to avoid and fish to grab. Uh, the box is yellow with an orange logo that says mancopter with blue outline letters. It's very 80s looking. And there is a large uh, piece of artwork on the cover. It's kind of tilted and framed in. But that is where you get to see... I guess an artist's rendition of the mancopter. You've got a pilot sitting inside a three-wheeled human-powered mancopter flying over the ocean. There is a fish strapped to the side of the seat, so the fish, again, are very important. Uh, there's also a rudder on the back, and uh, you can kind of see how the vehicle works. There's You can see the propeller and the pedals and how everything's connected. A lot of detail. There are thunderstorm clouds above in the painting, and below you see the buoy, which you will be passing during the race. Uh, you can see a mermaid, a shark, a squid, a pelican, uh, and the whale. So these are all things that you are going to be seeing throughout the game. There are also a couple of other mancopters uh, flying along, which you will also be seeing in the game. Uh, according to the manual, there are four requirements to play Mancopter. So if you plan on playing along this week, you might want to make sure you have one of these uh, or all four of these things. Uh, you'll need a Commodore 64 computer, a compatible cassette recorder or VIC-1541 disk drive, a TV set or video monitor, and a joystick. I'm curious how many people had Commodore computers and didn't have a monitor. <laughs> It's <laughs> such a, an odd requirement. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking like, uh, you know, you call the number, you go, oh, listen, I loaded Mancopter and I don't see anything. Uh, do you have a monitor? Oh, no, I forgot. I forgot. I don't have a monitor. Oh, well, you're going to need one of those. It's listed right there in the manual. I don't know. I don't know why you don't have one. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, when the uh, game loads, we see uh, Mancopter, we see uh, uh, copyright from Datasoft, we see um, Scott Spanberg's name, and then we see the game uh, you know, take off in a demo mode. We can see the, the race beginning as uh, uh, the racers take off. Um, the controls for playing Mancopter, uh, you're going to use your joystick left and right. Um, now, because you're racing from right to left, which is a very unique, I couldn't think of another single racing game where you run from right to left. It's almost always left to right. And that, that just seems to be um, uh, like the default or natural scrolling uh, direction. So going in the opposite direction, I thought was interesting. Uh, but, you know, you, you'll press left technically to uh, speed up, right to slow down. Uh, you'll also be pressing the button. Um, like a lot, uh, the button in this game, 
is how you pedal and pedaling is what makes your man copter go. So if you stop pedaling for more than a second or two, you will drop out of the air and uh, hit the water and, and you don't want to do that. Uh, so whatever joystick you plan on playing this game with, you might want to get one that has a comfortable fire button because you will be pressing it about twice a second the entire time that the game is going. Uh, in that aspect, it's a little bit like joust. Uh, and al- almost felt a little bit like Flappy Bird in a certain uh, parts of the game where you have to go underneath uh, trees and through these little uh, narrow passages. Uh, so again, uh, Mancopter is uh, at its heart a race game. Your your goal is to uh, pass as many other enemy Mancopters as possible. Uh, you're trying to reach each buoy before your time runs out. You start with 70 seconds, and each time you pass a buoy, you get another 40 seconds. Uh, but you can build up uh, a total of 99 seconds. You can't get more time than that on the clock. Uh, if you do run out of time, you can exchange fish that you have for five seconds of time, and it will do that automatically. Um, now, as you pass other mancopters, it works exactly like joust. So if you bump into them and you are higher than them, you will knock them out of the sky. If they are higher than you, they will knock you out of the sky and you will go falling into the ocean below. Uh, you also get credit for how many people that you pass during the race. And if you knock people out of the ground or out of the sky to the ground, even if you're ahead of them, you don't get credit for passing them. So, uh, and, and you don't get a whole lot of points actually for knocking people out of the sky either. So it's, it's better, uh, to try to pass them if you can. But as the game goes on, uh, the other pilots will become more aggressive. And sometimes you, you have to, they will literally fly at you like kamikaze man copters. And, and, uh, the only way to, to pass them is to knock them out of the sky. So in man copter, and I talked about this on the video too. I'm sidetracking myself here. Uh, there's no way to say mancopter without it start being annoying. And, you know, you just start want to say like mancopter, mancopter, you know, just, just saying it over and over. It's, it's a very strange word to, to repeat, uh, throughout the, <laughs> throughout an hour long podcast. Um, so in mancopter, your fish are used as lives. So you don't technically get multiple lives in this game. Uh, what you get are fish. So when you get knocked out of the sky for whatever reason, like let's say a mancopter hits your mancopter and knocks you down into the ocean, uh, you will fall into the water and uh, you start the game with four fish. And a whale will come along and you basically bribe the whale to lift you out of the water with one of the fish. So technically it's almost essentially like you lost a man and as long as you have free men, the whale lifts you up. But instead of saying that it's free men, it's this strange concept of exchanging fish for goods to a whale, which sounds weird. Um, now, this game is full. Your number of fish is constantly changing. Uh, there are mermaids in the water, and they will give you a fish. So if you swoop down uh, and touch one of those, they will give you a fish. There are also pelicans that will be coming at you. And the faster you're going, and this is a race, so you want to go as fast as possible, um, if the pelican doesn't have a fish, he will take one of your fish. If he does have a fish, he will give you that fish. The problem is you have like half a second to react when the pelicans appear if you're going at top speed. So you could slow down, but then 
other man copters will be passing you and, and uh, you won't be doing very good at the race. So there's definitely a, a balance, a give and take between how fast you want to go uh, in regards to the Pelicans. Uh, as the uh, manual mentioned, the squids that will jump out of the water later will take one of your fish. So they jump out of the water and they take a fish. Uh, and then there's the dodo birds that hide inside these little, sometimes there's tree canopies and you have to go through these tiny little passages. It almost feels like scramble where you have to go through this little passage and, and, uh, uh, it, it's, I mean, it's not hard. It's, it's annoying, but there are dodo birds in there. And if a dodo bird falls out of the tree and hits you, it will take two fish. And again, anytime that you, if you run out of fish, the game is over. So. As long as you have a fish, if you get hit and you get knocked to the the ocean, the whale will come, you give him a fish, and he launches you. If you end up in the water and have no fish, the whale will not come, but instead a giant shark will come and eat you, and then that is the end of Mancopter. <laughs> he eats you, your Mancopter, the whole kit and caboodle right there. Uh, so it is a race, but also the goal of the race is not only to finish the race, but also to get the highest amount of points that you could get. Now, capturing a fish from a bird or a mermaid gives you 500 points, uh, but downing someone else's mancopter only gives you 10 points. So not very much points are awarded for knocking other mancopters out. Uh, if you down a gray mancopter, now there are gray mancopters that are very aggressive. And if you knock one of those out, you actually get a thousand points. And then finishing the race, you get 10,000 points. So, uh, again, you know, like something like, just getting a fish is 500 points and then hitting your opponents is only 10 points. So, uh, you can, you can do it, but there's just not much reward for that to finish the race. You get 10,000 points. I looked up the high score and the high score online on retrocomputerscene.com is currently listed as 275,990 points. Um, which I'm not good at math, but let's see, that would be, 10 would get you to 100,000, 20 would get you to that. So he beat 27 races. I mean, that's just amazing. That is an amazing score. I don't know how people get these high scores. My high score is six. <laughs> that's not true. My high score is higher than six, but uh, it certainly was not anywhere near. I don't even think it was near 10,000. Um, and also he played on expert difficulty, it said on that. So the higher your difficulty is, the more uh, you're going to start seeing those enemies like the squids and the dodo birds and, and all those things that are going to start coming after you um, more aggressively. So I mentioned this in passing on the Mancopter video this week. And of course, I'm joking because they're saying Mancopter, Mancopter over and over. But if I could change... One thing about this game, I know this sounds silly, but I would probably change the name. And, you know, I try not to be one of these people that are um, PC just because I like to argue things or like I don't, you know, I, I, I'm just not that that type like, you know, but on the other hand, I very much don't want to offend people. You know, and I know that uh, there has been a push uh, in my lifetime and, and, you know, recently, I would say, to try to move certain things, uh, you know, to remove gender from certain words in our language. You know, um, we, we don't, uh, you know, there, there, we, when I was a kid, we had manhole covers. 
but now I hear them referred to as maintenance holes. You know, we have firemen, uh, and now they're firefighters, you know, I mean, even if, if something was man-made now, we would just say it's artificial, you know, and I don't think it, it hit me personally until I had a daughter and I would refer to things and say like, Oh, there's a, there's a fireman, you know? And, and she would say, well, that's a, a woman. And I'm like, yeah, it's a, it seems weird to say fire woman, you know, where fireman fireman is just kind of natural, you know? So, um, so I don't know. It, it, there was something about this title, and I'm sure all the way back in 1984, nobody thought twice about it. I mean, it's a, a helicopter that is man-powered, so it's a man-copter, you know. But um, maybe there might, maybe it should be a, a people-copter or a self-copter or something like that. I don't know. And I, I don't know why it struck me, but uh, there's just something about Maybe it's because I said the word man-copter 800 times on this episode. <laughs> maybe that's why uh, it stuck out to me. But there's just something about it that... Uh, Seems like it could be changed. So let's get into this week's trivia question, which is kind of a strange one. Uh, and I asked at the top of the show if you had heard what the AHS Sikorsky Prize is. Well, this was a prize that was founded in 1980 uh, as a, a prize for a competition to build the first human-powered helicopter that could fly. Now, the rules were... This helicopter had to be able to fly 10 foot, which is three meters, uh, for 60 seconds. And it had to be able to remain in a 10 by 10 meter square, which is basically um, 40 by 40 feet. Um, so this was founded in 1980. This is the original mancopter competition. Uh, in 2013, uh, well, I, I want to say that the original prize money that was put up was $10,000. In 2013, the reward was raised to $250,000. So that tells us a couple things. Number one, somebody really wanted to see this happen. And number two, in between 1980 and 2013, nobody had been able to do that. I mean, it seems like it wouldn't be that hard to make a man-powered helicopter that would uh, fly 10 feet. Now, uh, there were a lot of teams that tried, and the first team that actually got off the ground uh, was in December 1989. Uh, Cali uh, Polytech State University flew for 7.1 seconds and reached a height of 20 centimeters. Uh, this, uh, their name of their, their helicopter was the Da Vinci 3, and it is considered to be the first recorded human-powered helicopter flight. Um, so that was nine years after someone introduced this prize. Now, if you go through Wikipedia, which is where I found all this information, uh, there is a, a steady stream of uh, different helicopters that, you know, came close or, you know, uh, achieved uh, different things. But it wasn't uh, until... Late 2013, I believe it was, with a ship called uh, Aero Velo. Uh, well, that that was the the team was the Aero Velo. Uh, it was a startup founded by University of Toronto graduates. They got their funding through Kickstarter, uh, and the name of their helicopter was the Atlas. The Atlas helicopter. Uh, they began trying to fly it uh, uh, in August. And it says on August 28, 2012. So this is 
32 years after this price, right? Atlas became the fifth human-powered helicopter to fly. So only five teams have been able to make a human-powered helicopter. Now, the Atlas, and I looked up video of this on YouTube. The Atlas is this giant... um, quad rotor it's it's a bicycle the frame is 50 by 50 meters uh again there's a bicycle in the middle and there are four giant rotors in the corner of each one um uh if you go wingtip to wingtip it's 190 foot wide uh and it says that the entire thing weighs uh, 55 kilograms or 120 pounds and power is achieved solely from uh, the leg power of the guy pedaling the bicycle. Uh, but on June 13, 2013, the Atlas completed a flight that fulfilled the requirements of the Sikorsky Human Powered Helicopter Challenge. The flight took place at uh, Soccer Center, an indoor soccer stadium near Toronto. It lasted 64 seconds and reached a maximum altitude of 3.3 meters. Uh, they received the $250,000 prize. And uh, when presenting the prize, it says American Helicopter Society Director Mike Hirschberg remarked that several studies proved that this challenge was, in fact, scientifically impossible. And then he said, well, it took a third of a century to prove those skeptics wrong. Uh, The team did mention that the most difficult part of the flight was not the ascent, but rather controlling the descent without crashing. And uh, and there's a a few more things uh, listed there. They also broke several records. They broke um, the longest hover flight by a woman, uh, Alexis Reichert, which was 55 seconds. The largest or longest hover flight by a man, Trevor Evans, at 87 seconds. Uh, And then the uh, youngest flight uh, was done by a 15-year-old young man. And the oldest a pilot was Mark Pollan, uh, who was 55 years old. So that's probably way more than you wanted to know about the human-powered helicopter challenge. I was really amazed that it's only been done five times. Uh, and seeing something like Mancopter, uh, you know, we, we all watch these TV shows with, uh, oh, gosh, you know, that not just hang gliding and paragliding and all these things, you know, the, uh, you know, the ones that have engines hooked up to them and, and – uh, you know, I was just thinking, like, playing this game, Mancopter, which is what uh, sent me into to researching this. I thought, you know, I wonder how realistic is this? Well, apparently it's not very realistic. I mean, if you can make a Mancopter that can fly three meters off the ground, you can get a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> so, and uh, these guys didn't even have to worry about squids and dodo birds stealing their fish. So, <laughs> I don't know. All right. That's enough about all that. Um. I referred to Mancopter as a cult classic. This game got great reviews. It seems like everybody who played it back in the day loved it, but for some reason, it just got lost in the shuffle. Um, Lemon64 gives this game 7.8 out of 10, which is pretty high for Lemon64. Uh, Computer Entertainer Magazine gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars. Commodore Format gave it 85%. 
Um, and Commodore format also listed in this is in the uh, March 1994 uh, issue. They put it on their list of the Path to Righteousness 20 Essential Games. So they thought pretty – and this is in 1994, 10 years after this game came out. So that's pretty amazing that uh, it was still making lists. Uh, most people, I would say the average gamer has not heard of this game. Uh, the only other review I found was a funny review on GameSpot which said – a good game if you hate your thumbs, <laughs> which made me laugh because uh, it will definitely wear your thumb out as you are pedaling your mancopter. Uh, if you want to play mancopter, I hope you love the Commodore 64 because it was not ported to any other system. It is a Commodore 64 exclusive. Uh, so if you want to play it today, same thing. Fire up uh, WinVice or your favorite Commodore emulator uh, or any of the... I can't even list them all. There's so many of them. The Mini 64, the Full Size C64, the Ultimate 64, whatever your game uh, system of uh, choices, and fire up a round of Mancopter. I did check eBay for any copies currently for sale, and I was excited to see Mancopter for $12.99, but it turns out that's just for a magazine ad. Someone pulled a magazine ad uh, out of a magazine, and they're selling that for $12.99. But... Earlier this month, a complete, not sealed, but complete copy of Mancopter did sell on eBay. This had the box, the manual, a floppy disk, and cassette. So I don't know if it was sold, if it originally came with both the cassette and floppy disk. That seems weird, but it's possible, I suppose. Um, but that sold for about $220. So uh, not only does Mancopter have a... Uh, uh, a cult following, but apparently if you like Bancopter, you're going to pay for it as well. So uh, anyway, let's get on to my personal memories of playing Mancopter. On this week's Bright Castle Plays video on YouTube. I shared a little story and I'm going to retell it here. But when I first, actually before I got my Commodore 64, I had my two buddies, Jeff and Andy, and both of them had Commodore computers. And so I bought a box of blank floppy disks and I went over to Andy's house and I copied like 10 disks full of games. Uh, and then I took those games over to Jeff's house and I let him copy those games. And then I copied 10 discs of Jeff's games. And then I went back to Andy and I gave him Andy's or uh, Jeff's game. So I was kind of the man in the middle. Right. And so I ended up with copies of both of their games. But right off the bat, I knew that if I was going to start building this big library of copy discs, it was going to be pretty difficult to find things, you know, once I got more and more floppies. So, of course, I, you know, like everybody, I had disc labels and and uh, wrote the, the names of the games. But I also started numbering them. So those first 20 discs are not technically in any sort of uh, chronological order. Uh, you you could have shuffled them and, uh, you know, there's just no telling which ones were, were first or whatever. But uh, discs 1 through 20 are definitely the first 20 games uh, or first 20 discs full of games that I had for my Commodore 64. Mancopter is on disc number 2 in my disc box. It's literally labeled 002. Um, 
The other games that are on that same side of that floppy are Cell Defense, Flip Flop, Load Runner, and Zone Ranger. Oh, and Dig Dug is on there too. Now, um, most of those games are copyright 1984. Load Runner is actually 1983. Uh, Cell Defense has a crack screen from Eaglesoft of October 24th, 1984. So I, I know that I got my Commodore in 1985, but it looks like uh, this was definitely one of the earlier discs that I had. All these games seem to be, uh, there's nothing from 1985 on here. They're all 1984 uh, or earlier. Now, I will tell you that as a kid, I don't really remember loving Mancopter, and I think a big part of that is like what I just said. I didn't understand all the nuances of Mancopter. I didn't understand that those pelicans were taking my fish or that I needed to have more fish for the whale to save me or all these other little nuances which you get from reading the manual, you know. And I think that is, um, you know, that was definitely a part of computer games back then was – you didn't get everything in the actual software. A lot of the instructions, you know, we just talked about it earlier about Load Runner, about the all the, the keystrokes required to do the, the level editor. That information's not in the game. You had to get that information from the manual. And whether or not that was a, uh, at least in the early days, I don't know if that was specifically designed to deter piracy. But without that manual... These games just weren't as good, you know, and so it's a little sad that I had Mancopter sitting on this disc for the whole time I've had my Commodore 64, and I've only kind of recently uh, discovered it and found out what a, a great, fun little game it is, and it's probably because I, I didn't purchase it, unfortunately. So uh, really, I would say my memory of Mancopter is not playing Mancopter, which is uh, uh, definitely unfortunate. For graphics, I give this game three out of five mancopters. Uh, the sprites are definitely colorful. Uh, the black background is is kind of bland, and uh, um, it's okay. For music, I also give it three out of five mancopters. I think the music is entertaining, but there's really only one song, and it will start to get annoying as it continues to loop. Uh, sound effects, I think I would only give this maybe a two out of five. There just aren't that many sound effects and what's there just isn't that memorable. But that being said, overall gameplay, I have to give Mancopter four out of five Mancopters. Uh, it's definitely a fun, addictive racing game. It's very easy to pick up. And once you learn those little things about what's going on with the, the fish, uh, you know, it becomes a, a challenging racer that you can uh, compete with your friends and see who can get the furthest and get the highest score. for tuning in to Sprite Castle. If you'd like to send me feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me at robohair at robohair.com. Contact me on Twitter at Commodore. Follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Catch me hanging out on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server 
or leave me a voicemail on the FLAC Podcast Hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support this show and gain access to behind-the-scenes blog posts and other bonus features, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara to learn more. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, the Sprite Castle RSS feed at podcast.roboherr.com, and through the Amigos podcast feed, which is anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. To hear more podcasts from me, check out You Don't Know Flack, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness. You can find links to all these shows at podcast.roboherr.com. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to Mancopter in your Mancopter, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. <laughs>